Welcome everybody to episode 7 of Ed Talks. Two international teachers in the international circuit talking about teaching. We're joined today by Donald Robertson, author of Stoicism and the Art of Happiness, Practical Wisdom for Everyday Life. How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, the Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius, and Build Your Resilience, CBT Mindfulness, Stress Management to Survive and Thrive in Any Situation. It's great to have you, Donald. Thank you so much indeed for your time. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I've read a few of your books. I, th- I thought the one on Marcus Aurelius was brilliant. Uh, you get a real sense. You get to know the character in a real personal way. Where we were interested in then is how do we take this uh, this philosophy that's, that's making a huge revival, how do we take it and apply it to the school context? And you see a lot of things in the news. Uh, they talk about these the snowflake generation. And I was mm. just doing a wee search of that and the words recently been added into the English dictionary, you know, to describe young adults who are less resilient, less prone to uh, the inner strength of previous generations. Do you think the younger generation are lacking resilience? Gosh, I think it's hard to say, actually. Um, certainly what we can say is that the rates at which mental health problems are being diagnosed seem to be steadily increasing over time. So I think it was about five years ago maybe a bit longer than that in the u.s there was a they had the national institute for health in the u.s did the the largest ever prevalence study that they've conducted and they found that the number of people who had a lifetime prevalence um so currently were diagnosable or had met diagnostic criteria in the past of having a mental health problem was just over 50 percent so the interesting thing about that is that uh, psychopathology or mental health problems are traditionally classed as a branch of abnormal psychology it's kind of the terminology it goes back to the 19th century but obviously if over 50 percent of people have them then psychologists start scratching their heads and saying well maybe this is normal psychology then we can't really call it abnormal anymore if it's the majority of people that are affected by these issues so it seems to be a growing problem and uh, it's hard to say though because it may be because the diagnostic criteria are changing as well we're introducing new diagnoses and maybe identifying things that simply weren't identified before. But uh, I think young people can definitely benefit from some kind of resilience training for sure. Um, I think they had opportunities to develop resilience maybe in the past through sports or other kind of activities and things, you know, which maybe the culture has changed and education has changed so that Uh, Young people maybe aren't exposed to things uh, that would naturally help them to develop resilience and the way that they might have been in in previous generations, perhaps. But certainly, I think there's a kind of need uh, and a demand for some kind of uh, help. I used to be a schools counsellor for a couple of years in South London. And uh, uh, one of the problems, I would say, is that... uh, for a start, once somebody's already got problems doing counselling or therapy, in a sense, you, you've caught them too late. You know, the name of the game is prevention. Prevention is better than cure, obviously. And uh, also for many young people, perhaps particularly for adolescent boys, counselling, psychotherapy and all that kind of stuff is somewhat stigmatised. Actually, I encounter a similar thing working with the military. Um, that for someone to go and see a psychotherapist, in their eyes, it may mean admitting that they have some kind of vulnerability, and that might be something that they're ashamed to acknowledge. And so often stoicism can allow us to get the same ideas, uh, cognitive therapy ideas and techniques, out to people um, that wouldn't have access to them normally, people that might 
see it as too stigmatised to go and see a counsellor or a therapist might be willing to learn or read about stoicism, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a question later on to talk about um, boys particularly in, in schools because uh, this is a big thing that teachers grapple with is the underachievement of boys now in, in the, the Western world. But for the likes of David here and other teachers who'll be listening in, the first mm-hmm. question they'll have, the most prevalent one will be, what is stoicism? How do you explain it to a lay person? Well, sometimes I like to answer questions in a roundabout way. So I'm going to answer that by saying what stoicism isn't because I think that's probably the most important thing to say first. So if you look up in the dictionary, you'll see that we spell stoicism sometimes with a lowercase s, and that means having a stiff upper lip, or more specifically, it means a coping style that involves suppressing or concealing emotions that are considered to be painful, unpleasant, or embarrassing, right? Having a stiff upper lip, basically. And that is not what we mean by stoicism when we write it with a capital S, and we're referring to an ancient school of Greek philosophy, And I'll actually add something to that, which is that many of the discussions of Stoicism on the internet, and even in some academic books on the subject, fall foul of confusing these two quite different things. And uh, the organization, the nonprofit that I work for, Modern Stoicism, um, which is run by a multidisciplinary team of volunteers, psychologists, classicists, classicists, philosophers, and so on, It does research on Stoicism, and it did some research recently, very simple research study, correlational study, just to compare lowercase Stoicism and capital S Stoicism. And uh, what they found was that there was uh, not only no positive correlation between them, but there's a small negative correlation. So in other words, people who follow the Stoic philosophy are actually less likely than average to try to conceal or suppress unpleasant emotions. And that's really important because there's a a substantial body of scientific research that shows that lowercase stoicism is actually bad for your mental health. And it does the opposite of improving resilience. It actually makes people more vulnerable to mental health problems. Whereas capital S stoicism is arguably good for your mental health because it's the philosophical inspiration for modern cognitive behavioral therapy which is the leading evidence-based form of modern psychotherapy. So one of them seems likely to be good for your health, and one of them is almost certainly bad for your mental health, and yet people confuse them all the time on the internet. So that's why I want to start off by emphasising that these are two different things. So what is capitalist Stoicism? It's a school of Greek philosophy that was founded in 301 BC by a Phoenician merchant called Zeno of Citium at Athens. And it was heavily influenced by earlier philosophies, particularly the philosophical teachings of Socrates. He's kind of like the godfather of Stoicism in a way. And the main figures in the history of Stoicism, Stoicism flourished for nearly five centuries in Greece and subsequently in Rome, but it's mainly the writings of three Roman Stoics that we have today, uh, Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius, who was what I like to describe as a, a big deal back in the day because he was a Roman emperor. So he's the, he's the last Stoic standing in antiquity. We don't hear much about Stoicism after Marcus Aurelius, surprisingly. It went out in a blaze of glory um, with the most famous and influential Stoic of all. And uh, so that's a little kind of tour de force of what Stoicism is. And in terms of, historically, but in terms of what the Stoics actually believe, so these guys in the togas and the sandals and all that, what what are they actually going about saying and doing is the other part of your question, I, I think. So Stoicism is first and foremost, i say there's two parts to it. 
First and foremost, at its heart, in its essence, it's a moral philosophy. Cicero said the cornerstone of Stoicism is the teaching that virtue is the only true good. So in layman's terms, what the Stoics were saying was that it's not external things like health and reputation that are the most important thing in life, but rather the use we make of the circumstances that we find ourselves in and having the moral wisdom and strength of character to use our environment and our circumstances well and the opposite being, you know, having a weak character or being foolish or vicious and using our advantages in life badly. So character is more important to Stoics than external things. And they think this is a radical idea. It's the complete opposite of what the majority of people would believe in the ancient world and in the modern world, for example, in terms of celebrity culture and consumerism and hedonism and narcissism and all of that good stuff. So Stoics thought we're rocking the boat here by actually saying something that's just the complete opposite of what a lot of people tend to believe. And that, that's the core of Stoicism. But although it's a moral philosophy, it has obvious psychological consequences. And that's the second really big chunk of Stoicism is the, the psychotherapy that was inherent in ancient Stoicism. So if you imagine this ideal of somebody who cares first and foremost about having the wisdom to cope well with circumstances and is relatively indifferent to sickness and poverty uh, and uh, other, you know, slander and other negative experiences that life might throw at them, that person would obviously have uh, a kind of psychological or emotional resilience to be able to cope well with adversity, better with, uh, with adversity than somebody who uh, treats uh you know, how other people view them or how much property they own is the kind of be-all and end-all of life. So that's why stoicism kind of evolved into psychotherapy and why psychotherapists and psychologists today became very interested in it um, because the values in which it's based clearly lend themselves to developing psychological resilience. Yeah, certainly there's a, a benefit in, in terms of uh, for young people and I, even I would say for teachers in applying the ancient wisdom of the past. We did some previous podcasts about this need to generate or to tap back into bits of uh, human wisdom, which is, is more applicable now or more relevant. It's interesting because, yeah, this is a, a really, really uh, excellent philosophy for building this resilience. And I'm curious about how then teachers could develop it in school. I know you run the Stoic Week. We and we've, um, in my own school, we actually uh, replicated a Stoic Week. We had a Stoic Week in school where the kids practiced a Stoic technique for uh, one day of the week and they journaled. From your role of uh, being a counsellor in schools, and how do you think we could go about developing it in the curriculum of schools and uh, getting teachers on board with it? Okay, brace yourself. Because I'm going to mm -hmm. give you an answer that's slightly at a tangent again from what, what you're asking me. But it's the traditional stoic answer. I'm going to say something quite radical. And it, it's similar to what I would have said in the past to psychotherapists. And it, it surprised them in a way because it wasn't really what they were expecting to hear. I think you guys, teachers, need to go there first. Like, so I think you need to lead by example, first and foremost. That's the way that the stoics thought things should be taught. Um, they thought if you're going to show somebody... What it means to really embody this way of life, you know, you need to start to cultivate it first and foremost in your own character. And then lectures and discussions and things like that are valuable, but it's not going to kind of come across in the right way if you're not already putting it into practice yourself. It's going to seem hypocritical 
like a superficial unless you you can say like you know i'm i'm doing this myself but another cool thing and again this kind of answers your question at a, a bit of an angle but i think i think you're going to appreciate this it, uh, let me tell you a story right in ancient greece um the schools of philosophy were typically named after their founders so pythagoreanism is named after pythagoras epicureanism named after epicurus uh, Platonism is named after Plato, but the Stoic school is not named after Zeno, its founder. But it was briefly. It was called Zenonism. And I'm glad it's not anymore. So for a start, I find it quite difficult to say that word. And it sounds a bit like <laughs> Martians or something like it. Sounds, you know, Zenonians sound like they would come from outer space. So it doesn't have the same ring to it. So but the Stoics thought we can't call ourselves that. And one of the reasons uh, was that the Stoics were known for denying that uh, the Sophos, the perfect wise man, has ever existed. So they said our founder isn't perfectly wise, he doesn't claim to be. It's also why it's more like a philosophy rather than a dogmatic religion. So Zeno said, this is the stuff that I figured out, you know, here are my arguments, if you agree with me, let's hang out and talk about it. If you don't agree with me, go and join one of the other philosophical schools. Why? But, you know, you need to use your own reason to think through the arguments and figure it out for yourself. It, it's not, we're not going to initiate you into a cult or something like that. It's not a, a dogma in that sense. And so luckily for us, it didn't become a cult of personality, right? It became a, a philosophy. It was self-critical and reflective, um, but nevertheless premised on the idea that, you know, they expect that a lot of people are going to end up arriving at the same conclusions if they follow through the, the same arguments. And uh, Seneca, centuries later, in one of his letters, says something which I, I suspect, I don't know for sure, but I would suspect that maybe Zeno or one of the other founders of Stoicism had already said this. I should say less than 1% of the Stoic literature survives. So we know about some of these later Roman Stoics. We only have tiny fragments that tell us about the founders of the school, actually. So we have to speculate a bit about what they originally said. But Seneca says to his friend Lucilius, I don't want you to think of me, he says, like a physician, like a doctor, like an expert. He could have said like a sophistes, like a, a teacher, an expert. He says, I'm not some kind of wise man or guru or something like that. He goes, I want you to imagine that we're both patients in hospital beds side by side, and I've just been undergoing treatment for longer than you. So I can tell you about how my own treatment has been progressing so what he's describing is a peer support relationship uh, in which nevertheless it's recognised that some people have more experience because they've been doing it for longer than others, but nobody puts themselves on a pedestal as an expert. So that seems to be, I think, the, the model that the Stoics accepted for teaching their philosophy. It wasn't a guru-student relationship. Like It was more egalitarian than that. Um, I guess it was more student-centred in a, in a sense. It employed the Socratic method uh, for a start, so encouraging people to reflect on questions and to kind of arrive at the truth for themselves, uh, rather than kind of ex cathedra, like a didactic approach to teaching. And, uh, you know, that was how they went about doing it. So I think in schools, it would probably be, and also because I also believe that people's greatest strengths are very often their greatest weaknesses. And I think Stoicism's greatest strength is its greatest weakness and vice versa. So the big strength that Stoicism has is that it's based on the set of values that lead to emotional resilience. But that's a, a weakness because we can't teach Stoicism 
in a psychotherapy or a counselling setting in the way that it was originally taught because we'd be indoctrinating the, the client into a set of values, right? They might say, I don't happen to agree why with the values of stoicism, right? But outside that setting, if we approach it in a more student-centred or client-centred way, you know, we can give people the opportunity to learn about stoicism and benefit from it. So stoicism, you could say, does something so deep that it would be out of bounds in counselling or therapy, conventionally speaking, like, because it goes beyond the kind of instrumentalist, utilitarian kind of approach to helping people control their feelings and gets right at the heart of their underlying moral worldview by on the assumption and i think a, a pretty plausible assumption that there's a close relationship between certain types of underlying values and certain types of emotional problems that we encounter like if you really care strongly about other people's perception of you like for example then you're probably going to be more susceptible to social anxiety yeah for instance um and so I think that the, the way that we approach it and the way we tend to approach it in Stoic Week, likewise, isn't to say, look, these are the values you should embrace, but rather to say, why don't you guys reflect on your values and think about them and compare it to what the Stoics said? And it is strange that, generally speaking, we do find that people end up agreeing with them anyway, you know? Um, I mean, you know, maybe that's because we're kind of influencing them or maybe there is a tendency if you give people the opportunity for them to arrive at more of a consensus um, than we would typically assume. But uh, I think it, it needs to be about encouraging people to think for themselves. And actually, there is an approach that's used in counselling that's been around since the 1970s called values clarification, which is a, a form of Socratic questioning, which we kind of draw on in Stoic Week and in Stoic Mindfulness and Resilience Training. And it's very student or client-centered. It just involves getting people to reflect on moral questions. And we found that very helpful as a, an established approach that we can kind of adapt to teaching people about Stoicism. That's really good. Sorry, John, I'm a, I've been a silent partner here, but I've just been really interested to hear what you have to say. And I've been reading up on this since um, Ryan introduced it to me. I mean, I've I've had awareness since I did my training in the early 80s, as a, you know, as I did a four-year B.Ed. teacher and what have you. And I, I really love this stuff. But a point you've, re you've, you, you've highlighted there for me, the practice what you preach approach is massively important to what this is about in a way, especially from an educational standpoint. And I'm just wondering, whereas Ron and I were chatting about how could we get this into schools because we actually do have a, a belief that it's massively important for kids. Uh -huh. But how can we actually get it into teacher training so there's a better understanding and a better dare I say, grasp of the areas of study that you've highlighted that we can then cascade out to kids. That's the key thing. Mm -hmm. So getting into a kind of unified state-based teacher training kind of mode, that's a massive hit. But yeah. it's something actually which I think could have real legs. I mean, is that something you've looked at at all? It's not something that I've looked at directly. Education is not my main focus. But we, we what we tended to notice with modern stoicism is that just by getting publicity and getting in all the newspapers and yeah. putting it out there we had teachers come to us and teachers all around the world said oh we took this and we adapted it to use with our students like in all sorts of different types of schools so we've had we've kind of started to do a little bit more to bring some structure to that and organization to it not a lot though it's early days but it's one of those things that happened organically in the same way that we're doing a military conference in January, because over time we noticed loads of people from different branches of the armed forces in different countries were coming to us saying that they were really interested in stoicism and they had their own kind of angle on it in a way. 
And also there are a lot of people that work in sports and fitness, uh, coaches for baseball teams and basketball teams and stuff that are interested in stoicism and kind of have their angle on it. So I felt like once we started to form these big stoicism communities that we noticed them kind of not dividing, but kind of breaking naturally into subgroups like there's communities within the community. And I guess one of them is the people that are interested in stoicism and, and education. Now, first of all, what we've done for sports and uh, parents and the military is to create online communities for stoicism and whatever. I don't think there is one for education, though. And so my advice generally would be like, the first port of call is networking, like just starting really basic, like and getting all these different people that we know are out there in different countries and, and putting them in touch with one another so that they can share resources. You know, yeah. and, and maybe that's stating the obvious. So Facebook works quite well like there's pros and cons to it but lots of people have a facebook account so it seems to be a good way initially to put people in touch and get them sharing resources and then the other things that i would say is i think my honest opinion and i might be wrong about this is that there may be some resistance among some people to the idea of stoicism because they confuse it with lower case stoicism this kind of unemotional coping style and I think one way of addressing that, in my experience, is actually to focus a bit more on the heritage um, coming from Socrates. Um, mm. And then Socrates is more of a unifying figure, in a sense, because he stands at the kind of very origin, um, in, in, a, in a sense, of the, the Western philosophical tradition. And the, the concept of Socratic questioning is familiar in education, in law, in medicine, in psychotherapy. It's a kind of familiar construct to a lot of people in different walks of life. So I, I sometimes I wonder whether it might be better to focus on teaching Socratic philosophy as a way of life. So focus on Socrates from a Stoic perspective. Um, and then, you know, use that as a way kind of to get more into the Stoics, basically. Um, I think Socrates in this might be a more kind of unifying figure. Than, than Seneca or Epictetus, maybe Marcus Aurelius. But you need the Stoics really to... I, I, this is also a very glib, a simplistic thing to say, but um, the problem with Socrates, again, greatest strength is his greatest weakness. Socrates gives these elaborate arguments that are very open-ended and all over the place. So that's really interesting, but he the Plato and Xenophon lose a lot of people. Um, you know, you speak young people get like three or four pages in and they kind of lose... Uh, interest, especially nowadays, you know, people want things in bite-sized chunks. Whereas to put it crudely, this, with the Stoics, you almost get this kind of bullet point version of Socrates. Like you get a summary, and actually I'll tell you a little story about that. When and my first degrees in philosophy, and Stoicism is one of the few traditional uh, schools of philosophy that's left off the undergraduate uh, philosophy curriculum normally. And when I ask academic philosophers about that, I think it's kind of amusing and paradoxical, ironic what they say, right? So they'll say, well, the Stoics draw heavily on concepts and arguments that are found in Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, right? But they don't do in terms of the theory of the concepts. All the Stoics do, they say, is tell you how to apply these ideas in daily life for your own psychological benefit. So why would anybody want to study that? They say, right? So all they do is tell you how you put it into practice. Why would anyone want to know that? Like, 
But that's precisely why normal people, like the, the majority, the, the, the general public, are, are really interested in the Stoics. Because they're like, oh, that's how you would take Socratic philosophy and actually put it into practice. So, and sometimes what you don't get in the Stoics is the kind of argument, how did you get there? How did, how did you get to the point that virtue is the only true good? Well, you know, in Plato and Xenophon, you get more of the backstory and more of the arguments that are used to support that position. Um, but they're very different styles of writing. Like, it takes more patience, for sure. For, without a shadow of doubt, few people read Plato's dialogues today compared to in the past. It does take patience and concentration. Um, to, but it's easier. The, the Stoics write in sound bites. Um, Cicero said... Uh, to Cato, one of the Stoics, he said, you guys uh, look and sound like Laconians, like Spartans. And we use the word today, laconic, to mean kind of concise and to the point, because that's what the Spartans were known for talking like. Well, that was how the, the, the Stoics were perceived. Cicero said, you guys sound like laconic. You sound like Spartans, because you stick to the facts. You don't use rhetoric. You don't use complicated arguments. Someone once complained to Zeno the founder of Stoicism, he got some critical feedback from one of his students. He said, um, he says, she said, uh, he said, uh, you know, you, your arguments are, they're very abrupt. They like these little simple short arguments, right? Not like a hundred pages long, not 10 books like Plato's Republic, like to get to the point <laughs> about what is justice, like, you know, 200 pages of it or whatever. You know, Zeno, Zeno had these very simple little arguments, uh, and someone said, complained and said, your arguments are very abrupt. And he said, you're right, they are. And he goes, you know what, if I could, I'd even make the syllables shorter. Like, so he, <laughs> he wanted things to be as condensed as possible, because he thought, you need to be able to remember it. Like, and when someone walks up in the street and spits in your eye, you know, like Plato's Fido or whatever isn't really, you know, going to spring into your mind. And it, like, you need some very simple concept by a way of looking at things that you can recall easily that's kind of bur etched in your memory and the, the stoics thought memorization and recall was extremely important to putting these things into practice i think that's quite an interesting idea in therapy we don't frame things in terms of memorization recall you know we talk more about conditioning or skills training or whatever but you can certainly view the goal of therapy in terms of getting people to remember stuff and then recall it in appropriate situations like recalling a, a helpful um, way of uh, viewing a situation at the right time and the right place, for instance. Um, so yeah, like th these are some of the the considerations. I think talk about. I'd bring Socrates into it, you know, but combine that with the Stoics because the Stoics give us the kind of practical way uh, of applying it. I'd make it student centred, just encouraging people to think about it. I'd simplify. You're going to have to simplify things a lot. Um, so yeah. keep it, you know, short and sweet. Um, the disadvantage of stoicism. The reason that psychotherapy. When I when I wrote my first book on stoicism, it was aimed at psychotherapists. So I thought obviously psychotherapists should be reading about this because cognitive therapy is based on this, and they all quote Epictetus. It's not things that upset us, but rather our opinions about them. Uh, but that was the only quote they knew from Epictetus. I thought, it's really strange. Why don't they read the rest of it? The Enchiridion's not even that long. You could read it in a, an hour, right? But uh, if I said to them, how many other quotes do you know from that book? They'd be like, I don't know, none. Like, just that one. No. But every cognitive therapist knows that quote. They teach it to all their students, all their clients, all they used to. Um, and so I wrote a book about, uh, you know, really delving into this 
looking at the relationship. I thought psychotherapists would dig that and get into it, but they never really did. Everyone else got into stoicism except the psychotherapists. And I wondered why that was. And I think one reason is that if you're a psychotherapist, you have to read a lot of modern research. And so they're kind of too busy to go back and read Seneca and Marcus Aurelius. And there's also a bit of resistance to the idea of reading old stuff because they always want to read what's kind of cutting edge and, and research-based and so on. So the disadvantage of Stoicism is that it's old. And some people, like, that's not their thing. They just want to know what the latest research says. But equally, that's its strength. Because I said earlier that only 1% of the Stoic literature survives. I've got a sneaking suspicion that it's the best 1%, like, that it's curated for us by history, right? Because we've got some fragments of some of the other Stoic writings, and to be honest, they're a bit dry, like the ones that didn't survive, like so maybe that we got the best one percent. Like, you That's know, that was why it survived this day. And Seneca, for instance, is one of the finest rhetoricians of antiquity. And Marcus Aurelius massively underestimated. Like he spent decades training in Greek and Latin uh, rhetoric, um, under the, the most highly acclaimed rhetoricians of his of his era. And so also they write in sound bites. Seneca was criticised by Latin orators for writing in uh, an aphoristic, like, pithy style. Well, he wrote in tweets, right? Um, there are many, many endless quotations from Seneca because he excelled. At, I mean, sometimes Seneca is not good at forming arguments, but he's really good at, at coming up with memorable, pithy sayings. Compared to Cicero, the other famous orator of antiquity, he gives long, elaborate speeches, but there's a clear path that the argument follows. And by comparison, Seneca's not good at that. He's a little bit all over the place. He'll sometimes contradict himself from one page to the next, but he's really good at coming out at little pithy, memorable sayings. And that's an advantage in the modern era. Like, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, the beauty of the Stoic writings is partly why they've survived. And so it is old, but it's also memorable. The thing I like to say to people is I've never met anyone yet, and I've thrown this gauntlet down many times, by the way, and as yet, no one has contradicted me on this. I've yet to meet anyone who has an Albert Ellis or an Aaron T. Beck tattoo, right? Those are the two pioneers of cognitive therapy. <laughs> but I meet people all the time with Marcus Aurelius tattoos or quotes from Stoicism, um, someone sent me a Pinterest board the other day that's just full of photographs of guys with stoic tattoos. Like, and what <laughs> I infer from this scientific sample is that people identify with stoicism like it's a religion or something, like at a much mm. deeper level. It's not like a bunch of techniques that they learn and then forget, it's something they identify with for the rest of their life. You know, once a Stoic, always a Stoic. Like, Stoicism's for life, it's not just for Christmas. Like, people get into it permanently. Like, whereas someone might read a book in CBT and think, that's amazing. And then, like, two or three years later, they probably can't remember a word that they read. This is a big problem in CBT. That in the long term, um, where people are learning skills that you have to remember to put into practice, often people use those skills really well, but then forget them several years later. Um, and... Uh, you, there's a parallel in the treatment of back pain. So research on back pain shows there's loads of different types of physical exercise that seem to be much of a muchness in terms of helping people with back pain. So Pilates and yoga and physiotherapy exercises and other stuff. They all kind of like work moderately well, right? But yoga works better over the longer term. 
like even though it's like a an older it's less of a kind of research-based approach or whatever and the reason being that people uh, it's got a lower dropout rate lower attrition rate because people that get into yoga get into it for the rest of their life and they carry on doing it permanently right and that's gold dust in terms of prevention why you know to change people's long-term behavior if they actually identify like like this extent that they get it tattooed on them with something then uh, you know that they're going to carry on doing it for a long time and people will tell you people will quote things that marcus aurelius or seneca said that they read decades ago like always remember this thing marcus aurelius said like but you don't get them doing that with books on cbt right because they're not literary masterpieces generally speaking like reading Seneca is like if Shakespeare had written a book on CBT, you know, it's you've got something that's both psychologically beneficial and it happens to be a you know a, a masterful piece of of literature, and that's important because people enjoy reading it and they remember it for much longer and identify with it at a deeper level. So I think recognizing the the aesthetic quality, the the literary value of the Stoic writings, is a, an integral part of it as well. We're not just doing history for its own sake. You know, because somehow older things are more important. But uh, there are qualities that these writings have that make them unique that we can't replicate easily, right? I couldn't. I can't write a book on CBT that's going to be as well written as Seneca's on anger, because I'm not Seneca. Like you know, Seneca was a one-off, like literary genius. You know, and uh, you, so we benefit from the the value of the writing, and that gets underestimated. But in a way, it's really obvious. You know, you see these quotes all over the internet because these guys were like really talented at, at phrasing things, um, and you know, it's, as a writer myself, you know, to write a modern self-help book and come up with something as memorable, like and as catchy and as meaningful as hundreds of quotes that you find in Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, mm-hmm. you know, it, yeah. it's very hard to do. So that, I think recognising that aspect of it would be important to get teachers into it, to appreciate why it's important. Why classics are the future, like, as I like mm-hmm. to say. Ancient philosophy is the new rock and roll, is my little slogan. Like, so the, it, there's, <laughs> oh, there are good. reasons. There are reasons why these things still matter. I think the accessibility of the, the Stoics is, is very important. Um, it's funny, I don't have a, uh, don't have a Marcus Aurelius tattoo, but I have my bust from a holiday yeah. in in, uh, in Rome. You don't but, have uh, an Albert Ellis, or a, it's, you know, you haven't got a bust of a modern <laughs> self-help author, right? Um, but you've got a Marcus Aurelius bust, and you know, like it's iconic, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I don't like to say that Stoicism is like a religion because I think in certain key regards it's not. It's a philosophy. It's more about using reason than faith or revelation or tradition. Like, but people immerse themselves in it as if it were a religion. It's, it's more than philosophy. I'll tell you what people say to me because I think this will help you as well. I've spoken to thousands of people over the years who are interested in Stoicism from all walks of life. And the things, if I ask them, why did you get into this? They'll say some interesting things. They'll say, um, it's like Buddhism, but a Western version. They'll say, it's like Mm -hmm. a secular alternative to Christianity. They'll say, it's like academic philosophy, but it's more practical and down to earth. And they'll say, it's like cognitive therapy, but it's more philosophical. Mm -hmm. It's more of a way of life. It's bigger and broader in scope. And I I think that, that those things kind of sum up like what people are looking for in Stoicism. Um, you know, it's a, a, 
it's philosophy, but it's philosophy as a way of life. Absolutely. And I, I, one thing I was wanting to ask you about, in my experience of uh, working with students during Stoic Week and talking a wee bit about one thing I did notice as a trend was a lot of young men, actually about 16 to, to 18, that age group, would come and then they'd ask me, you know, where do we get a copy of Marcus Aurelius' Meditations? Or, And do you think there's something in Stoicism that's that's hooking young men specifically? You know, I know... Uh, yeah. Even the the modern writers today on stoicism, a lot of them tend to be a lot of them tend to be men, and we deal with a lot in teaching toxic masculinity and all these other other themes. What do you think about the idea of stoicism and resilience and teenage boys, basically? Well, first of all, um, it's definitely true. I mean, I'll say a couple of things about this. Like, one is the philosophy in general has is is much more appealing to to men. Um, philosophy uh, undergraduate courses at university you tend to be male dominated and actually we did some uh, one of the things i looked at to kind of reinforce that was i went to the epicurean group on facebook and i said what are your stats on gender and they're exactly the same as the stoicism group right so arguably it's not a, it might be a mistake to think that it's something intrinsically about stoicism it might just be a reflection of a wider gender bias that we find in, in philosophy across the board whereas um, psychology attracts more women for for whatever reason why the gender bias is the other way around in psychology. Now there are things about stoicism uh, though that are kind of interesting from this point of view. Um, and again, I'm going to say that its greatest strength is its greatest weakness. So a lot of men, adult men, but maybe also adolescents as well, are drawn to stoicism because they think of it as kind of being macho or they, they confuse it with a stiff upper lip ideal, right? But as long as we can acknowledge that and kind of flip it around, it might be that we can upgrade their lower case stoicism into capitalist stoicism, if you like. So lower case stoicism is unhealthy, and it's a problem that people confuse that with stoic philosophy, but it may also be a strength in a roundabout way. Because maybe it allows us to get them in the door and then teach them something better. Maybe those guys wouldn't be going to CBT or to see a counsellor or a therapist normally. But maybe if we get them in the door, like, you know, they, they came for the stiff upper lip, but they stayed for the Greek philosophy kind of thing. <laughs> you know, like, maybe we, could, maybe we can kind of entice them in and go, well, like, you know, let's, let's look at this. Look, and maybe, we can, maybe there's a more nuanced and more sophisticated alternative to this right rather than just kind of rejecting it outright maybe we can turn the toxic masculinity into some more kind of healthy virtuous masculinity as long as we you know we can find some common ground you know even if we go well you're half right like you know there's maybe there's aspects of this like we could like, we could work with rather than just kind of negating it completely you know so i think we have to be careful about this we have to look at it from both sides so the lowercase stoicism is a psychological problem, but it might also give us an inroad to get people talking about what might be a healthier alternative. That's how I would approach it. And, uh, you know, like, it's true that a lot of young guys will be like, you know, I don't want to go and see a counsellor because that means there's something wrong with me. But I don't mind talking about stoicism because that might help me to be even tougher than I am already. Like, mm -hmm. you know, so it doesn't clash with their, their, their self-image in the same way. And everyone, they all like Gladiator, the movie as well, and Russell Crowe, I, I tend to find. 
Like, so there's kind of cultural things that they can identify with. And the connection with sports. So if you go, well, there's an NFL exec or, you know, there's like uh, baseball, basketball players that are into stoicism. Um, so the celebrity connection, you know, like Darren Brown's really into stoicism. You know, like, uh, sometimes for young people kind of just mentioning like the sports heroes and celebrities that are, and they're straight, there are pros and cons to that as well. Because often when celebrities mention stoicism, they maybe haven't really understood it that well themselves. And they might say things about it that aren't quite right. But nevertheless, it, it potentially is a hook to get young people interested in it, to show them it's not, you know, it's not just a bunch of kind of like boring old guys, like, you know, sitting about in libraries or whatever, you know, like maybe there's kind of like, you know, there's musicians that are into stoicism and actors that they like and sportsmen that they like that are into stoicism. Oh, it's interesting mentioning Darren Brown because I remember he was a he was at Wickliffe School and his dad was a swimming coach there. And the sports the sports connection there was uh, was quite interesting, I think, for Darren and that kind of mental resilience when he was there. It was uh, mm -hmm. that's a real good go one, actually, Donald. Now this is fascinating for me. As I said, I'm picking up on this. I have an awareness, but I'm just trying to think now. And what I've got to stop doing is try to think practically as how or how can we actually buttonhole this and kind of get it into something because that kind of goes against the whole idea of it being being from us and within, so I say, and it being kind of quite organic in a way it goes. But flagging it, I think, and I'm really interested in this kind of the, the gender bias in this as well, as you said, it's uh, in the fact that, you know, it, it, it's good for some guys, you know, it, it's good nowadays for guys to be quite open with their emotions and for others it's tried to get back in. And I'm thinking from a rugby perspective, you know, it's quite, it's okay to be emotional and do everything else, but at yeah. the same time, you if you show it, it's at a weakness, if you do talk about it, and that's where we are in this, I think. That's the yeah. that's the ether we're trying to get through here. Yeah, I was thinking that because uh, I know Philip Zimbardo did an amazing uh, TED Talk called The Demise of Guys, and he was saying about how Western education now has, has come full round. You know, we've it's been so important mm -hmm. in the 20th century to include girls much more in education, but now mm -hmm. it's coming round where um, it's leaving guys behind now. And, um, some students, some of the, my 16 to 18 year old boys uh, were getting in touch during coronavirus and telling me about uh, what they'd read of Marcus Aurelius and of, and I was able, you know, able to have a laugh with them. Well, he's lived through the Antonine Plague, so he yeah. best understands what it's like. <laughs> I wrote um, an article for The Guardian, actually, and it kind of went a bit viral. It got shared 11,000 times on Facebook about the Antonine Plague wow. and Marcus Aurelius and The, and the Guardian. Um, so actually, I mentioned that because that might because it's written for a newspaper. It's a little bit more short and sweet, and kind of like maybe actually easier to show to to young people to use in teaching than than some of the textbooks might be. Um, so yeah, like for sure, I should we should emphasise that the you know sometimes when we say oh, there's a gender bias and stuff, of course, like people will say there aren't any women that are into this. No, what we mean is there's a significant minority of female adherence to stoicism so about a quarter of the groups tend to be female so sometimes i said recently someone was saying well there aren't any women in this group i said there are twenty thousand women in this group right it's just that they're not it's not a 50 50 split but there still are a lot of women and you know of course there aren't many ancient female stoics because in ancient greece in particular women were treated like slaves virtually mm. and you know so women had a very limited role in in ancient greek culture anyway um and to some extent in roman society as well there are in general very few ancient greek and roman philosophers that's just a reflection of the 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 times the culture unfortunately yeah. but in the modern world there are actually quite a few modern female academic philosophers 
they write about Stoicism um, and other branches of, uh, of uh, Greek philosophy. Um, Edith Hall, Martha Nussbaum, for example, uh, Margaret Graver, you know, and there's some self-help authors uh, that write about Stoicism as well, like that organise groups and do events and stuff like that. So actually, I meet quite a lot of living women that are uh, interested in Stoicism. Like, this is the, there aren't many dead <laughs> female Stoics. <laughs> like, there's quite a few that, you know, like, so sometimes when people say, well, there aren't any women, I go, well, like, you could have fooled me because I keep meeting them. Like, so there are a bunch. <laughs> but we, you know, maybe there, there is this kind of male thing um, to some extent. And, uh, I, you know, another simplistic thing to say would be, um, you know, it's for guys that, that just don't want to get into therapy and stuff like stoicism offers them a, a, an alternative and uh, in environments like the military or in sports teams and stuff, maybe there's kind of some element of peer pressure or something about the culture like that, that makes people kind of avoid uh, seeking therapy. So it allows us, sometimes the way I put it is it allows us to sneak CBT in the back door. Like, you know, so they wouldn't come and see me as a therapist about it, but they're happy to talk to me about ancient Roman uh, legions and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. and, and, really, and we end up talking about CBT. So, you know, as long as it, it gives us another, it's very incredibly valuable in the sense it gives us another way to get, self-improvement advice and you know like normally we assume that resilience has to be taught through psychology and psychotherapy um but it it wasn't really until recently or I'll, I'll tell you another way of putting this if we take let's look at the big picture right like most things and it's all it all goes back to the industrial revolution kids right so the, the <laughs> about the division of labor right in the ancient world a philosopher and a psychotherapist weren't two different jobs, right? Like, so when, when Aristotle, Aristotle did everything, like he did botany, like he studied logic, he studied rhetoric, he, so he talks about psychotherapy and ethics. So in the ancient world, intellectuals often were Renaissance men, they were jack, jack of all trades, right? And then as time progressed, there was greater and greater uh, division in the academic subjects. And so today we go, well, you guys are philosophers and you guys are historians and you guys over there are psychotherapists and you really shouldn't be talking to each other, right? But uh, when I published How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, my, my editor said to me, Donald, he goes, you know when you go in a bookshop? And I was like, yeah. Like, and he goes, you know, they've got like a shelf and it says history and I was like yeah and he goes then they've got another one that says like self-help and I was like yeah like and then there's one that says philosophy and I was like yeah he goes you know we can't put your book on all of those shelves like <laughs> goes, you have to pick a genre like in order for us to be able to retail the book and I was like but that those divisions between genres didn't exist like in the ancient world like philosophy and psychotherapy and to some extent history were viewed as kind of intertwined subjects and we've artificially ripped them apart like and there are there's some advantages as you know to special specialism there's also disadvantages to it as well and so i think what people are craving in some ways is actually a return back to this pre-industrialization kind of like approach to education where where everything is just kind of interconnected in history and philosophy 
and psychotherapy and ethics yeah. aren't different subjects. Like they're different aspects of the same subject. Like people, that's what people want. They one want shelf. Yeah, they want a therapeutic one shelf rounded uh, philosophy of life. And you know, you put some people. Are, why would we go back to something that's two thousand three hundred years old? Well, because that was before we broke it. Right. <laughs> 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 like, because like they because they didn't divide it up in the way that we do, which doesn't make sense. People are sort of going, "Well, it's wrong that it's divided up." It allows us to get back to what it was like before we artificially uh, divided things. So yeah, that's good. So we're going to blame libraries for this. I think that's what we're going to <laughs> blame libraries. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm completely out of questions. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you. I've, I've really looked forward to the conversation and got a lot out of that as well. And I think there's some great ideas then for for teachers that will be listening in, as to you know getting groups going and uh, seeing how teachers can start connecting and. Yeah, and I think the idea of expanding stoicism and taking it from the teacher first is a is a great idea. Personally, fabulous, Donald. Thank you very much indeed. It's it's lovely to chat with you, but just to listen to uh, dare I say the fundamentals of what what we're talking about here, and uh, you've explained it to someone who's a kind of a bear with little brain. So I've really appreciated that, and uh, yeah, I'm going to be reading up more on it. So thank you very much indeed. It's okay. It's a pleasure. I enjoyed it, and I, you know the one thing I'd add actually is that. Um, if you have maybe even uh, could write a small piece about your experience of using Stoic Week at some point, something like that, and you put it on the Modern Stoicism website's blog, then what I tend to find is, I guess there's two ways of getting the ball rolling, right? One is to form a community. Another one is to say something in public. Like, so the Modern Stoicism blog gets like 50,000 hits or whatever a month. It gets quite a lot of traffic. And what we find is when people even just say a little thing, like, or do an interview even, and say, we've been working with uh, youth, working in schools or whatever. This is what we found. You know, there's a chance that other people around the world will then email you like, or comment on it and say, listen, that's really interesting. You know, how about we kind of work together or we share resources or something like that? And I think that's how momentum starts to build. It's, you've got to kind of get out there. And one is through networking and the other one is just through, by publishing things, like saying them in public so that other people can see and respond. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. Well, that'll get traction. Thank you. That'll be good. Awesome. Brilliant. Thank you so much indeed, Donald. And uh, thank you immensely for your time. And um, the links to... Um, your author page on Amazon for teachers interested be posted underneath the podcast that we look oh. at some of uh, your books and I definitely recommend How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. Thank you so much indeed. Have a good well, evening, Donald. Thank, thank you, you guys. Thank you very much for your Cheers time. Then. Really appreciate it. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.